This is Devin Turner on the Freebooters Network. Today we bring you another episode of The Scholarly Warrior. In this episode, the hosts are joined by famed historian and author Stephen Turnbull. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm Terrace Cassidy, and with me today, of course, is the illustrious Daniele Boelli from History on Fire. Hey guys, good to be here. We're going we're gonna to change things up a little bit as we have a special guest with us. If you've read anything about samurai history, ethics, or religion, you've most likely were reading one of his books. He's a prolific writer and British historian concentrating on Japan and the samurai period. Welcome, Dr. Stephen Turnbull. Good afternoon. Pleased to be here. Awesome. Yeah, I'm very excited that you're here. Uh, uh, we were talking earlier, and uh, uh, I've met, read many of your books, and uh, yeah, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you. No- normally, what we do is we start off just finding out what we've been up to recently, and any good books or movies or that kind of thing. Uh, Danielle, would you like to go? Sure. So, let's see. My winter has been passed in the usual, with the usual winter ritual which is watching the extended version of the hobbit and lord of the rings on multiple <laughs> days eating copious amounts of pizza and uh, while there's noise outside so not a bad gig awesome and <laughs> <laughs> any any extra things you saw saw in lord of the rings anything that was surprising well, we named our, uh, we have a dog, uh, old Nine Pounds of Fury. This dog is, has been named Azog the Defiler after the name of the orc. So this, uh, this particular year we decided that it was a good idea to just yell at the dog. Most of the movie keeps telling him, why are you being so mean to the dwarves? Come on, what have they done to you? So, so that was entertaining. <laughs> uh, <coughs> Uh, I also watched a couple movies over the weekend. Some some really great ones. Some some not so good ones. I've watched you know I watched White House Down uh, this last Christmas season uh, for the first time, and of course it's kind of silly adventure that kind of thing. But I was really wondering if people outside the U.S. understand the feeling of that we get as foreigners to that land of seeing the Capitol building crumble and the white house get blown up. <laughs> it, it's very, it's, it's, it's like cringe. It really hurts actually about us too. So it's curious if, 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 if uh, what other people, what Americans think of other people think the same thing. So, so anyway, I, I also just finished watching Sukiyaki Danjo, uh, one of my favorite samurai western movies by Takashi uh, Miike. Uh, is his take on Yojimbo. And uh, have you have you guys seen that? No, no, I haven't. Oh, no, me neither. Oh, you should take it in. You'd love it, Dad. It's like crazy. Sure. Lots of swords, lots of uh, guns and uh, bugle music and and the sword catching scene in particular is very funny or very good anyway so that's what i've been Stephen, what have you been up to well funny you should say about watching white house down because i just realized i've been watching the comedy version (laughs) um for my one of my christmas presents was a box set of that wonderfully funny series veep with julia louis dreyfus and um i've enjoyed it so much but 
what I can't get my head around are these crazy, fantastic plots. Um, in one episode I saw the other day, the plot was, and this, this remember, this was made six years ago. The plot was that the president was going to build a wall along the Mexican border, <laughs> and that just brought the house down. And the current plot in the series three I'm watching is that the American government has shut down for three weeks. And it's just <laughs> hilarious. But where they get these crazy ideas from, I can't think. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, a little bit of... Uh... <laughs> apart from that, apart from that, as, as, as I know you're about going to say, um, have I read any good books lately? Well, the thing, uh, Terrace, I don't read books. I write them. Okay. Uh, right. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I just haven't got any time to read anybody else's. But uh, what I have done, plug, plug, I have just finished, and it's ready to be sent off, uh, what will be my 80th book. Wow. And it's been a great feeling. It really has. And and which what? Give more. Stuff. We were going to ask this at the bottom. I know. I know you were. No, no. Let's do. Let's do it. Let's let's hear it. Let's hear it. What's what 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 do you have in the hopper? I've written a book about a battle that nobody's ever heard of, which is far better than writing a book about battles that everybody's heard of. <laughs> um, this is the siege of a little castle called Tanaka in 1587, uh, which is full of heroism and glory and ghost stories and disasters. And I've translated it all from the original Japanese. It's great fun. And to make it, I mean, talk about bringing these things up to date. Uh, just a month ago, I visited the site of Tanaka Castle, which has been extensively excavated. And that comes into the story. And then lo and behold, what happened last week you may, you may have picked it up in the news. Kumamoto Prefecture got hit by an earthquake. Right. And part of my castle has fallen down. Oh, no. Yes. <laughs> so uh, there's a photograph I've just chosen for the, the frontispiece. And it's the cliff at the end. And it's absolutely unique because last week it fell off. <laughs> oh, no. So, um, <laughs> so talk about nature imitating art, you see. So I've ha I'm having a great holiday. <laughs> Perfect. And you've got the picture as proof, and uh... got, I haven't got picture of the damage. Uh, oh. I, I've got. I, I have a man who's looking into that, but um, I've I've got the before picture. <laughs> they said anyone ever wants one, you know. So that's my career settled. That's my retire. That's my retirement scheme. <laughs> that's awesome. We'll be successful. And when does that come up? Uh, that. Uh, hopefully by Christmas of this year, 2019. Cool. Okay. Well, we're going to keep keep an eye our eye out on that one for sure. Um. All right. Well, let's get started. Oh, you know what? Before we get started, I'd like to uh, give another shout out to for our intro and outro music for Hit Dog Holler. Check them out. Uh, they have some awesome blues greatness. Uh, give them a listen to uh, via YouTube or other mediums. Anyway, uh, with that said, let's get the show started. I wanted to loosen us all up uh, by some short shotgun-like questions. Uh, just quick words and just one word answers are fine or elaborations are fine. That's cool, too. Are you ready? We are. Okay, good. So the first one is sushi or sashimi? Who, who's going first? No, you're. these are just for, just, just for you. Just for you. Sashimi every time, 
because uh, and only in Japan. I never eat Japanese food unless I'm in Japan. Though uh, I would stretch a point for certain areas of the United States of America where they do it very well. But um, oh yes, freshly cut sashimi, uh, preferably by a fishmonger in the fish market using a samurai sword who's up to his knees in blood and ice. That's what I call fresh. Sashimi every time. <laughs> that sounds about right. Speaking of sword. <laughs> I've been there. I've been, and that's what it looks like. It's like the <laughs> aftermath of an attack on a Japanese pirate ship. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that paints an image. Yeah. Uh, ninjas or samurai? Ah, well, as, not, as neither ninja nor samurai actually existed. That's a tricky one. Um, <laughs> goes my life's work. Uh, well, right. It, it depends who's asking and how many noughts are on the check. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> Godzilla or, or Ultraman? God, I'm 71. How would I know anything about things like that? Though, actually, I tell you this about Godzilla. This is absolutely true. Uh, my son, who's a fine man in his 40s now, um, the first words he ever uttered was a result of watching Godzilla on television. And it was an episode where Godzilla comes to London and smashes the Houses of Parliament. So the monster hits Big Ben, knocks it down, and this little boy who had hardly said a word before said, Daddy, monster broke TikTok. So Godzilla was the first words my son ever spoke. <laughs> That's awesome. true. That's an awesome story right there. <laughs> well, since we're speaking about fantasy samurai, then, since the real thing doesn't exist, how about in the movies, Rashomon or Ran? Oh, oh, chalk and cheese. I mean, I, I think Rashomon isn't about samurai. Rashomon is about human nature, and and truth, and and what is truth. Um, Ran is an overblown version of King Lear. Um, right. They're both very good in their own way, but Rashomon is a masterpiece. I agree. It's a great show. Uh, check that out if you haven't seen it. It's a very good one. How about Japanese Christmas or Japanese Valentine's? <laughs> I've never had a Japanese Valentine, but I mean, I um, I, I, I do cherish. I mean, I, I've been in Japan in the weeks leading up to Christmas, which started about September and seeing the Christmas decorations. And of course, I've never seen the famous one. I don't know if you've ever come across this, about how the Japanese allegedly decided to have a display in a department store to celebrate Easter and put up an image of a crucified Santa Claus. <laughs> no. Now, everyone says they know somebody who saw this. I, I think it's a bit of an urban myth. But um, as for Japanese Valentines, my wife's in the next room, so I won't go into that. Thank you. <laughs> uh, best thing you ever got out of a Japanese vending machine? Change. Change. You know how it is when you've got to... Well, I think actually I had to make a phone call 
and the only the only way to make the phone call this is going this is year there was a time boys and girls before mobile phones were invented um <laughs> and i put thousand yen in got out some gum and got some coins and made a phone call that saved my life that's the best thing i ever got out of a machine <laughs> uh onsen or no onsen pardon oh, onsen or no onsen oh onsen every time I spend half my life when I'm in Japan. Half the time, I spend up to my neck in water. <laughs> nice. I, I I I always choose a hotel that has got an onsen because it is the just the most wonderful form of relaxation. And just like sashimi, it doesn't travel. You can only get them in Japan. That's one reason why I keep going back. It is a wonderful thing to do. Yeah, it is indeed. Yeah. And last but not least, the very important question, Western or Japanese-style toilets? Well, if by Japanese-style toilets you mean the electronic ones, as this thing from a hole in the ground, which you don't <laughs> see nowadays, I like them so much, I have one here in my home in England. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I bought it. I bought it about 10 years ago, and I wouldn't be without it. Um, awesome. The middle of the night, it's cold, and... You get that lovely warm feeling. Sweet, I dig it. <laughs> everything. I mean, occasionally it goes wrong, and it's a bit like sitting on top of Old Faithful in Yellowstone Park. <laughs> but apart from that, uh, I wouldn't be without it. Genius answer. <laughs> the meat of the episode. We both Eras and I are passionate about like the more esoteric aspect of histories. We did recently an episode about samurai women. And uh, when talking about uh, ninja lore, we very much enjoyed the likely fake but awesome story about the dwarf ninja in the toilet, spirit warlord. Oh, yeah. uh, what is your an esoteric story from uh, Japanese history that you particularly dig, whether true or fictional? Well, I think if by esoteric you mean one that's got an element of mystery to it, mm -hmm. um, nothing for me tops the wonderful story of Hoichi, the, the, the ELS monk from the Heike Monogatari. Are you familiar with that? No, I'm missing out. I'm already yeah, saluting. Um, well, you know, um, it's it's one of the three features that forms a film called Kwaidan, based on Lafcadio Hearn's retelling of the legends. The Battle of Dan Nawura in 1185, uh, as, you, as you will know, was a, a huge disaster for the Tyra family. Hundreds of the samurai were drowned in this great sea battle, legend has it that the sea ran red with blood. And the story of that awful defeat was written into this great epic poem called Heike Monogatari, which traditionally was told by monks who would sing it playing the, the biwa at the same time. And the most famous one of these was a monk called Hoichi, whose playing was so renowned that they say that the ghosts came out of the sea to listen to him playing. And the, the story goes that the uh, Hoichi was tormented by these ghosts. And so the, the priest of the temple where he lived 
to prevent the ghosts from seeing him, painted all over him these strange Bonji characters in Sanskrit, which were a spell of invisibility. And so when the ghosts returned that night, they couldn't see anything except for the fact that the priest had forgotten to paint the magic signs on Hoichi's ears. And the samurai, realizing he'd be punished if he didn't go back to his master with proof, put his hands and, and took the ears and, of course, tore them off Hoichi's head. And if you go to the site of the Battle of Danawura now, you will see a little statue of this monk without his ears. And that's, um, say, one of my favorite stories. But can, I, can I just take this one forward just a little bit? Are you not bored? Yes. Yet? No, no. Yeah, the other great story of the Battle of Danawura uh, is that, say, these ghosts live in the sea, but it's a question of where they live because they're supposed to live inside the shells of the crabs who live on the shore. And if you see these crabs and you look at them, turn them over, and the impression on the shell is that of a human face. And that's supposed to indicate that there's the dead samurai living inside. Now, it so happens that I, I'm sitting here in, in my library, in my, my home here. This is the room where I write all my books. And on the wall, in a frame, I have one of these haunted crabs. It's the dead crab shell, which is supposed to have a ghost inside it. And the best thing about this, I bought that at the shrine in 1970 on my first visit. I went back 20 years later to discover, guess what? The crabs are now extinct. And what? the only ones you can buy as souvenirs are made of plastic. So I have here something incredibly unique. I have here on my wall a dead crab which contains the ghost of a dead samurai. So, so there. <laughs> I think that's esoteric enough for anybody. <laughs> I think that qualifies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I think that, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. I love how you finished it with the so there. That was that was so excellent. There, yes, I mean, yes. It's a bit like Monty Python. Let's stop the sketch. There, it's getting far too silly. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, one of my favorite samurais is that of Nasu, of samurai stories, of course, is the, the tale of Nasu no Yoichi at Yashima, uh, who shot a fan of the opposing army and then was congratulated by both sides. Do you have a favorite samurai story? Well, yes, I do. Well, I've got lots of favorites, but I'll just share with you one that I've just been working on um, for my uh, another book I'm writing. This, this will be number 84, by the way. I, I just like to keep, keep a track of things. Um, and it concerns the, well, you might call them the samurai of the seas, the, the Japanese pirates who, as you know, raided China and Korea. And during the 1580s, there are very good records of these Japanese pirates attacking the Philippines which at that time, as you know, was a Spanish colony. Now, the, the main weapon that was used by the Spanish armies at the time, and certainly used on the Philippines, in addition to the arquebus, you know, the, the, the primitive musket, was the Spanish pike, a great long spear that you would hold 
very firmly in, in, in a body of men. And in most cases in the world where the Spanish had conquered Mexico, South America, and so on, these pikes, the pikemen, were these formidable troops and the natives couldn't get anywhere near them, couldn't overcome them. The only ones who really knew their way around the Spanish pikes were the Japanese in the form of these pirates that we call Waco. And what the Waco used to do was to receive the pike thrust, which might have got into their arms, into their legs, into their side, and then absorb the wound, absorb the pike. But before the man could do any more, they would grab hold of the pike with their left hand and then hand over hand, even though the pike was sticking into their leg, okay, pull the pike forward to get to knock the man off his feet and then finish him off with a sword stroke. And this became such a common occurrence whereby the pikemen were attacked by the people who they'd almost literally impaled that the, the, the general uh, of this particular fortress in the Philippines ordered his men that before they went into action to run grease all down the shaft of their pikes so that if they stabbed one of the Japanese, they could then pull it out quickly before the man could grab hold of it. Or if he could grab hold of it, he couldn't get a grip. And I say that that just shows me the incredible ingenuity and, and bravery of the Japanese warrior at the time. Wow. <laughs> Quite a story right there. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Awesome. I love that one. Yeah. Going back to the 1100s, um, looking at available sources, it seems that Minamoto no Yoshinaka seemed to be ashamed to die with a woman fighting by his side. And of course, I'm referring to the Tomoe Godzen story. Yes. If this was the attitude towards women, how was Tomo able to gain a reputation as a warrior? What were her attitudes toward female samurai at the time? Now, Tomoe Gozen is a fascinating character because when, it, when you start looking for samurai women, they are very difficult to find. And the best examples come from much later than this, sort of 500 years later. Um, to start off with genuine women fighting, they almost always seem to come in two categories. First of all, the, the wives and women of the lower class warriors um, who formed these, these leagues called Iki uh, and, and withstood uh, sieges. They were so desperate that everybody was a fighter, men, women, or children. The other occasion is the lordly samurai, and there are several very well-recorded episodes. The lord goes off to fight in a battle. While he's away, his castle is attacked by surprise, and his wife then takes charge of the defense and appears on the battlements and even takes part in the fighting together. So you've got those two very genuine examples. But the amazing thing is, Tomoe Gozen is you're talking about her five or six hundred years earlier. There's hardly anything in between the two. And 
what I see in this story is this, that again, it's an example of a desperate situation that Yoshinaka has with him this uh, woman who probably, and I would imagine most samurai women were like this, had to be trained in martial arts just in case she herself ever came under attack, either individually or, or what have you. The fame, you know, prowess with the naginata. Women had to be tough in order to defend themselves. And because of the situation he found himself in, uh, in a flying retreat, cornered, then she fought at his side. And I think the reference that, that you mentioned, I, I don't think that's actually a very good uh, translation. That he's, uh, uh, the, the shame that he's got is not that uh, there's a, a brave woman fighting with him, but that he's got himself into this situation where it should be necessary. But the, um, and, and I say, there's really only one reference to her. Well, well two really. Um, one in Genpei Seizuki, which is fairly, fairly bland. And then the, the exciting story in Heike Monogatari, which, as you know, is uh, a lot of things are exaggerated in that. She pulls a guy off his horse and cuts his head off with his head placed over the pommel of the saddle so she can get a good grip on it. It's all, it's all good stuff. But uh, it is remarkable that there's hardly any other example. But it, it seems to me that it, what it shows to me is when the chips were down, when a samurai was facing utter defeat, then... You throw everything into the ring that you've got. And then obviously there's the choice of committing suicide at the end. But I say, apart from her, um, there aren't many references at all. But the ones that are, are pretty good. It's a good story. Yeah. Uh, as a follow-up, he's, he's, of course, as you said, there's not much information about her, and uh, I'd love to have more information about her, of course, given to the Western world. It's a great story, as you say. But how does, in general, how does a scholar venture to a foreign land and do research on such? Because, A, of course, everything is in Japanese, and, and B, everything is vague. So what, what's, what's, uh, what, what's your, what's your uh, oper operating mode? Ah, uh -huh. Right. Well, I mean, nowadays it's amazing how much you can get through the internet that um, you couldn't twenty or thirty years ago. But yeah, um, well, I always reckon that I I really only like to write about what I've seen and what I've done. Uh, to give uh, Tomoe as an example, um, only last when was it? It was this time last year. It was February of twenty eighteen. Uh, I was in Japan and. Um, I've always had this fascination for her and the story. And it so happens that the village where Kizo Yoshinaka was uh, was born uh, has a, a number of places associated with him. So I went along to the little museum they've set up where there's a statue of her standing next to her husband. There's the, uh, his grave is there. Uh, actually, no, no, his grave isn't. There. His grave's in Otsu. Uh, a temple dedicated to him is there where, where, where there's a, a, an effigy. So, and, and I feel that, that sort of seeing the places where he, he went, and I've, obviously, and I've been to the battlefield of Kurikara where he was defeated, 
it really gives you a feel for it that you don't otherwise get. Apart from that, it's a question of the hard slog. Now, I my spoken Japanese is not good. My conversational Japanese is it, it really isn't very good, partly because uh, I, I never have much opportunity to exercise it. Um, but what I do have and what I am actually pretty good at is being able to read Japanese and also to translate classical texts from about four or five hundred years ago. That's my great asset. And so really it's a question of tracking down the bibliographic information that you need. And then basically, you know, putting on the green eye shield and sitting there and just jolly well doing it. Um, it's all there. Um, it, you only have to ask the right questions. And <clears throat> I often find a very good example I came across recently. This work I'm doing on the Philippines is that I find that libraries in towns where an event happens are absolutely delighted when somebody turns up who is genuinely interested in the topic. Uh, for example, I was a couple of years ago, I was in Nagasaki and I went to the, the prefectural library and I basically said to the librarian, I'm interested in what happened in, Jap in 1637 when the Japanese planned to invade the Philippines. I mean, the plans were so extensive. They, they even had a list of troops and all their armor and, and, and everything ready. It never happened, as, as I'm sure you realize, but the plans were made. And I, I remember saying to him, um, I'm interested in any original Japanese sources you've got. So he said, well, come in here, do sit down. Would you like a cup of tea? Nice. Thank you very much. And, um, and then basically, 10 minutes later, staggers out with, with about 12 books. Inside each one is a little sticker. Uh, and that was every single reference that existed, <laughs> which wow. I then photocopied and then spent about the next year translating. But people are like that. They are just so helpful and kind. And um, so it's a question, really, if you show people that you're genuinely interested in the topic and that you're you're able to do it in the same way um temples uh, the the chief priests have been have been very useful in 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 opening doors to me you know and, and showing me things that are normally not on show um i think they took they take pity on this poor old git you know but um that, that's it Wow. Hard that... work and hard work and kind people. Wow. Well, that is in itself is an awesome story. It's amazing. You know, Japanese are incredibly willing to let you. I think people in general, actually, worldwide, are, are really amazingly eager to let people learn about who they are i think that's a very human thing but i gotta say that's really out of the box that you that you that your conversational japanese is is as you say poor i doubt that it is actually well, poor but it's probably better than i think it is this <laughs> right. like this um i i never fail to get served in a restaurant <laughs> oh, there you go. that's all you really need really that's all you need yeah <laughs> but and then the kind that... of food you actually order the one that arrives or <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll have what he's eating that's it <laughs> no, no, <laughs> I, I, yeah i, I mean I, I could tell some stories i mean can i just tell you what what an anecdote yes. on this 
Yes. Because you mentioned language. Okay, so my, my Japanese isn't, isn't that bad. But, of course, I have no Korean. Right. Now, my first visit to Korea, which is many years ago, um, I arrived in Busan and I was hungry. And, of course, I can't read any of the Korean script. And I thought, how do I find a good restaurant when I, I can't read anything? But I remembered what my mother had said. Because my mother always said, you can always tell a good restaurant because it's got clean tables and chairs. That makes sense, doesn't it? And I found a place that was abs absolutely spotless. And I went in and sat down and discovered I was in a furniture store. <laughs> and so. <clears throat> I realize now how baffled some people can be <laughs> in, in Japan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's uh, a good one right there. Yeah. <laughs> Switching gears to the impact of spirituality, specifically Zen Buddhism as it applies to the military class in Japan. You know, of course, there's lots of legend about it. There's lots of, some of it is probably exaggerated in the sources. Uh, we'd like to hear your take on uh, how much Zen Buddhism affected um, the culture of the, um, the military class. Well, in my personal opinion, I think the influence of Zen Buddhism on the samurai has been vastly exaggerated. Right. Uh, I really do. Um, and I base this really on... Uh, 50 years of study and, and all these translations I've done of, of chronicles and so on. Now, you, you get lots of references. Uh, you get lots of references to the gods of Japan, the kami, uh, in particular ones that are supposed to influence the warriors, such as Hachiman, the god of war. Um, ones who particularly favor the warrior, Marishiten, uh, who's the god that you pray to if you want to become invisible. That, that's, a, that's a whole story on its own. Uh, and you also get lots of references to Buddhism, but in a very general sense. And you come across uh, individual samurai who were ordained as Buddhist priests Takeda Shingen, Uesugi Kenshin are, of course, famous examples. But they all belong to various <coughs> Buddhist sects. And Zen is by no means um, a, a common choice. Um, quite why Zen seems to have seized hold of the Western imagination, uh, I'm not really sure. Um, I tend to think that it comes from something that's really nothing to do with the military at all. And that is that, uh, as I understand it, and I'm not a Buddhist, and I'm not a specialist in Buddhism, but my understanding is that unlike so many of the other uh, divisions of Buddhism in Japan, um, the, the, the Pure Land sects, which look outside uh, of, of the person for... Uh, a salvation figure uh, of, of the Buddha, Abida Buddha, uh, who, who saves us, uh, who, who takes us to the, the pure land, uh, of the sects such as Nichiren, who look at the, the fundamental literal scriptures of Buddhism for guidance. 
I think the fact that Zen has as its into the, the, the knowledge, the, the enlightenment which all Buddhists seek comes from within you, strikes a chord with, has struck a chord in the past with Westerners asking these questions who perhaps themselves have been suspicious of, if you like, the Christian religion, which looks outside itself because Zen offers this, 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 this new way of looking at it. And as well, the, if you like, the accompanying baggage of Zen, the notion of sudden enlightenment by reading these, these, these strange poems, the koan, and realizing their hidden meaning, the notion of meditation and that classic image, which you'll have seen in many films, of the students sitting there meditating and the, the, the master comes along with a stick and hits them round the back of the head so that enlightenment can break through. These are all, these are also, that look incredibly cool. Whereas so much of common Japanese Buddhism uh, that you would see in a temple is a bit too much like going to church. And so I think that's one reason why it's got into the Western consciousness. But I don't want to I don't want to over exaggerate its impact on the on the, the warrior class. But also we mustn't ignore it. And there are some classic, first of all, some classic individual examples. Now, of course, the one we all know about is the great swordsman Miyamoto Musashi, who practiced Zen Buddhism quite openly, and he and he wrote about it as well as a way of enhancing his skills as a swordsman. Now, if he said that, then there's definitely something in it. And you realize as well that he also expressed it by doing uh, ink paintings uh, in the Zen style, by meditating. I visited the cave near Kumamoto where Miyamoto Musashi meditated. Uh, so there really was something there on the individual level. And I can see how it worked <coughs> and uh, how whereby the composure, the self-control that you need in the hall of a Zen temple, where you have to give all your concentration on that spot on the wall to, to release the enlightenment that's within you, that is not very different from the composure you would need on the battlefield when you're going to face your enemy square on. You need that concentration, that single-mindedness, that quietness that Zen gives. What I can't find, though, are almost any references to people actually doing it on the individual basis in the uh, in in the battlefield situation. What I see more of are people at the moment of death putting their hands together and saying a prayer to Hachiman, the god of war. That's mm -hmm. very well recorded. But as to go into Zen enlightenment, I just don't see it. But on, on the bigger scale, uh, we do know that... Um, in that the time when Japan was in great peril during the 13th century, when the Mongols were invading Japan, the leader of Japan, uh, Hojo, was himself a devout Zen Buddhist. And he tried to inculcate these, these ideas of resoluteness, of concentration 
in Japan as a whole, as an underlying philosophy. And so it comes through then very strongly. But as for the individual warrior, um, apart from Miyamoto Musashi, I just don't find the examples. I think I'm going to have to look because I'm sure there's more there. I'm sure I've missed something. But as yet, I haven't seen it. So that's why I say I think the influence of Zen is not as great as most people would like to think it is. Makes sense. As, as a follow-up to that, would, would the Japanese themselves, the modern Japanese themselves, think that there was a Zen a Zen, a big Zen connection or not much of a Zen connection? Or would they be confused of Western people coming into Japan and saying, how, how are Zen, how is samurai related to Zen? Well, I know I, I have a Japanese friend who um, was very amused that um, all, all her friends thought that she must be practicing Zen Buddhism all the time. Um, I don't want to do anyone a disservice. But um, we must remember that religion to the Japanese is something that's part of your life and that you may not think about uh, as much as we do in the West. Um, ask somebody in the West what their religion is. They're probably able to tell you. But I know a genuine example of a very dear friend of mine who um, has written about Japanese religion as it is lived in the modern world very extensively and very well. And, and he once asked a Japanese friend, which Buddhist sect do you belong to? And his friend replied, I don't know. Nobody in my family has died yet. <laughs> now, there's a lot in that because, yeah. um, I mean, for a lot of people in the West, you know, you, you go to church three times, once to be baptized, once to be married, and once for your funeral. And um, a lot of people don't go any other time. It's not too different in modern Japan. And quite often, the whether you uh, belong to a Zen sect or Nichiren or Jodo or Shinshu, very much depends on what your family have always been. But that on the whole, I say I don't want to do anybody down on this. There will be letters, but um, <laughs> that without wishing to start a Twitter storm, I think for a lot of people it's something that they really don't give much thought to. Now, having said that, because of the practices that Zen demands of its practitioners, I would think that if I met a Japanese person who said, I'm a Zen Buddhist, a practicing Zen Buddhist, then that would tell me that this person is someone who takes their beliefs very seriously indeed. You know, that they say, right, I am this, and this is what I, what I would do. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if a person like that would spend time in meditation um, and, and things like that. Yeah. Oh, that's it. That's interesting. I, I guess the common in the Western world is exactly the same same thing, except that the religion would be different in a lot of ways. Um, I'm preparing right now, and uh, part of my interest in this is that I'm preparing right now an episode for my podcast, History on Fire, about the life of EQ Sojourn, which, of course, between uh, 
sex escapades, drinking sake, being highly unconventional makes for a fun character. So in these days, I'm uh, heavily immersed into the whole topic of how much or how little is uh, Zen relevant to, uh, to Japanese culture. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so actually to follow up on that then, um, often on my tours we, we of Japan, we go to gardens dedicated to meditation and reflection. And some of them are built by samurai. Can you relate any connection to art and the uh, samurai and the garden or art or poetry or anything like that? Oh, most certainly. And as I say, the uh, when we go on the, the, this tour that you're planning for later this year, that is going to be one of the highlights because the whether or not Zen is practiced as widely as people think it is, in Kyoto in particular, you have Zen temples and they are surrounded by gardens that are built specifically to create in you a frame of mind where this meditation, this detachment can take place. And my goodness, it works. It is absolutely wonderful. And you're quite right. A lot of them are associated with samurai families. Um, I know one of my favorites is, um, is in Kyoto. I know, Terrace, you'll be familiar with the Daitokuji complex of temples. Yep. And there's a, a beautiful little one called the Koto Inn, where um, Hosokawa Tadaoki, one of the great samurai, is buried. He's actually buried in the garden. But as I say, it was a retreat for his wife after he died. And it is a Zen temple. And in that and in so many other places, uh, you can just sit on the veranda, look out at the garden, and focus totally on the, the scene in front of you. And it's as an alternative to looking to against a black spot on the wall it's the most wonderful way of liberating your mind and again you're right all the inspirations of these gardens comes from zen buddhism and that is one of its great gifts to japanese culture i mean i should never forget one um there's a wonderful one on the outskirts of Kyoto called the Daitokuji. And inside it, there's a garden called the Sambo Inn. Now, the Sambo Inn was created by Hideyoshi, the great Taiko himself. And um, when he was building it, he coveted a stone that was in some other lord's garden. Because remember that all of them, they had their tea gardens, they had their own little temples. And let's put it like this, when Hideyoshi, when Hideyoshi coveted something that was yours, you then were delighted to give it him as a gift, including this particular stone. Now, this particular stone was famous because it was supposed to have been stained by the blood of someone slain in a battle, you see. So you, you just got to have this stone. And when you go to the Sambo in nowadays, you have a little guide leaflet to show you around. And at one particular point, you sit down and you're looking out on the garden. And there you see, right in front of you, this, this famous stone that Hideyoshi went to such trouble to acquire. And I should never forget, and this is a case of how uh, the garden freeze your mind lets it lets it float freely because i was sitting there and 
I would have worked out the size of this stone. I reckoned it was about three feet tall, okay, because of, of the trees that were round about. And it so happened that when I was sitting there, a gate opened at the back of the garden that I hadn't noticed, and in came a gardener who was going to go around and, and weed the garden, because as you know, in Japan, um, in the opposite to us, you know, we dig up the moss to leave the grass. They dig up the grass to leave the moss. So he was going around pulling all the grass out of the garden. And he walked next to this stone. And I suddenly realized that part of the trick that the gardens play on you is this physical one of an optical illusion. Because the stone isn't three feet tall. It's eight feet tall. The whole garden had wow. shrunk the way I was looking at it. And this is all part of the trick. And I say, that's what, that's what it does. It, um, it, it Just being there and sitting, and you need to sit quietly, put your camera away, and just sit there and enjoy. And the whole thing plays with your emotions and plays even with your vision. Yeah. <laughs> Very good one. I like it. Yeah. Good question. The... Um... The concept of samurai spirit, which again, whether legend or historical reality, if enough people buy into it, then it becomes real. How much does do you think this affects uh, modern Japanese culture? You mean apart from a money spinner? Yes, apart. Yes. <laughs> well, that's it. Yes. Um, oh dear. See, th this is a tricky one because. So much of samurai culture, as it's expressed today, is such an exaggeration, such a distortion of whatever happened, that um, it's so difficult to distinguish the truth from the fact. Now, I mean, a lot of people will say that samurai culture in Japan today is all about Bushido, the way of the warrior. Now, for... <coughs> For many years, that was almost a dirty word because of its association with Japanese militarism. Yeah. But in the time of the samurai, Bushido was the warrior's code, really didn't exist. Bushido is simply what you did if you were a samurai warrior. There wasn't a written code. There wasn't even an unwritten code. The notion that it was, if you like, this set of rules, that it was like a constitution Of, of, of the Japanese warrior really dates only from the late 19th, early 20th century. Now, a lot of it derives from a handful of Japanese writers, of which the most famous, of course, is um, Inazo Nitobe, who wrote the book called Bushido, the Soul of Japan. Now, that's a book you see on every bookstall in every airport in Japan when you're flying out. And it sickens me because you never see my books in the airport when you fly <laughs> out. There you go. Always Nitobei. But Nitobei was a Japanese Christian, and he wrote the book in Monterey, California, where he lived with his wife, who came from Philadelphia. Now, there's nothing wrong with coming from Philadelphia, I'm sure. But the point is this, that Nitobei himself based a lot of the examples in this book, which became almost the Bible of Bushido, on examples from the West. His favorite book for an example of how you should behave 
as a warrior, as as a, as a you know a brave person, wasn't some great Japanese classic. It was the English novel Tom Brown's School Days. He was very fond of that, and he quotes from that. He also quotes some Greek myths. Uh, and there's another one um, at, at the same time who added to this notion of Bushido. And uh, what impressed him most was um, on a visit to London in the 1870s, um, he was desirous of taking a trip on the River Thames in a boat. And two boatmen were arguing about which of them should take him and resolve the argument by fighting each other. <laughs> and one boatman knocked the other one down and then picked him up and shook his hand. And this Japanese guy wrote and said, "My, this is the cult of the English gentleman. I think we should adopt this for Japan. Uh, and so basically, um, in his view, the, the whole idea of Bushido was based on a, a couple of Londoners having a fight. <laughs> which, um, so... <clears throat> I get a bit skeptical but nowadays when I see the samurai spirit. It seems to be brought into everything. And I notice uh, that, again, um, I, you mentioned ninja earlier on, is that the more ninja than samurai, they're trying to get this very much into the Tokyo Olympics, which are happening next year. Now, I don't know how far they are with their plans, but I do know that the there was a meeting held only about a month ago between the Japanese Prime Minister and the the committee of the uh, the, the, the the Japan nin, the Ninja Association of Japan um, to talk about how this notion of the ninja as the superlative warrior, in other words, you know, the, the great exemplar of samurai culture, could be brought into the Tokyo Olympics as an example for, for young people of how to behave. So I have a prediction. I predict now, ladies and gentlemen, that when you see the opening ceremony of the Tokyo Olympics next year, you will see people in black throwing ninja stars about. That is my prediction. I'll have money on that. <laughs> well, and this is a topic that you have tackled in several of your books, you know, ninja and masking the myth and things like that, where you have kind of explored how the image of the ninja has changed over time and what's the historical reality and so on. I mean, you're pretty much answering that question already. Um, is there... Is there kind of where the consensus is going more in this direction of recognizing that, you know, as far as ninja goes, there's like nine parts mythology and one part historical reality? What's the correct uh, historical consensus on the topic? Well, the context as I see it is that, well, first of all, ninja was spies and secret agents. And every single military society in world history has made use of spies and secret agents. So it would be very surprising if Japan didn't. And certainly Japan did. And there are lots of authentic references to this sort of underground operation, special ops, if you like. They really did do that. The problem comes when you ascribe that to a particular if you like, brand of samurai that we call ninja. Uh, because my 
belief is this, that the word ninja and this notion of ninjutsu and all of that, it's not to do with the person. It's, it, 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 it's to do with how you do something. So in other words, the nin is the important thing. It's, it's how you do something in secret. So it's a bit like the origin of the word Viking. Nowadays, we think of Vikings as uh, as a noun, as a naming word to identify people. But in fact, Viking really is, is what you do. It's this process of raiding. And it's the same with a ninja. It all refers to what was done. And it was done by various different people, skilled samurai, desperate peasants, burglars, people like that. And Japan, and I, 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 it, this fascinates me, seems to be the only society in world history until the 12th, 20th century and James Bond and all that sort of thing that has deliberately made these people who are quite often regarded as beyond the pale, you know, oh, very unpleasant people, has made them into these great romantic figures. So, yeah, ninja's an exaggeration, but the beauty of it is it's an exaggeration that goes back over 300 years. Uh, so it, it's it, it, if it's an invention, it, it's, it's an invention older than Bushido itself, almost as old as the notion of the samurai. So... There's a lot there that's very, very genuine. So I would say that the only mythological bit about ninja is really to take this huge collection of truth of what really happened and make it into something um, that has an existence on its own. It's this creative bit, but that has been going on for 300 years. It's marvellous. Yeah, and and it's interesting that you say nin, ninja as a subset of of samurai. <laughs> I think that that myself included, we often see that as a separate entity altogether. So I think that's really fascinating that that uh, that bit. Did talking about ninja? Did you? I I heard recently that shuriken uh, throwing stars were not even ninja weapons. Is that? Did you hear, have have any insight on that? Yes. Um, well, of course, there can't be ninja weapons because there were no such things as ninja. But leaving that to one side, right. yeah, um, Shurik, yeah, um, the the only bit that's fiction in the story of the ninja stars is is making them used by ninja. Um, and I've actually managed to identify the process because uh, there are accounts in quite late Tokugawa, 19th century books and traditions of certain schools of martial arts who practiced with basically darts, mainly the straight darts, um, which were steel and they were flung and they'd stick it. Uh, And also, quite genuinely, um, spinning stars. Now, they weren't a serious weapon, um, but they did actually exist. And the interesting thing is that there's a character 
in the in the 1930s called Fujita Seiko. Um, he's one of the early people who wrote about ninja. Well, one of the one, if you like, invented the notion of ninja as these separate people. And um, he wrote a book in the 1930s and included in this book for the first time a picture of one of these throwing stars, a genuine one, from one of these schools of the 19th century. And another reason we know that they um, existed uh, is because one was owned by uh, one of the late shoguns of Japan. But it was never a serious weapon. It was one of the, the, the wide range of things that these schools of Jujutsu, these schools of Budo used uh, for practicing with. But once Fujita Seiko suggested that this was uh, a ninja weapon, it acquired a life of its own. And then in 1951, a very important booklet was published um, by uh, the guy who was actually became the mayor of Eager City. Eager, of course, as you know, the heartland of the ninja. And they, they set up an exhibition shortly after the war about ninjutsu, because of all the stuff that this guy had written. And somehow, these stars were placed on show in the museum. Now, where they came from, goodness only knows, I rather suspect some local blacksmith bashed a few out. But from then on, this genuine weapon became the ninja weapon. And now, whenever you... I mean, now, shuriken are everywhere. Um, if you go to Eager, which we're going to do on this, this tour with Terrace, um, we will eat a bowl of noodles where the seaweed on top is shaped like a shuriken. <laughs> uh, yeah, and we will, we will take part in the, uh, a shuriken throwing uh, contest. And I warn you, I'm pretty good. I won a prize, actually. Um, in Togakushi just two years ago. I just thought I'd slip that in. But as I say, they're everywhere. But then you get, and, and just to give an example of how exaggerated you can get, you may have seen photographs in books of, of, of shuriken shaped like a swastika. And um, we actually know where that came from because there was a film made in, um, which one is it? In the 1960s, where they wanted to use shuriken, and, and you can see the footage quite easily. But the, 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 uh, the producer was rather concerned about the damage that, that these pointed shuriken were doing. So he designed a shuriken shaped like a swastika. So it was actually a film prop. But that never appears in all in all the books as a genuine shuriken. But I mean, it's a bit like you know you can't take Father Christmas, Santa Claus, out of Christmas. You have nothing left. You can't take shuriken away from the ninja. In terms of this fantasy warrior, and we all recognise the fantasy. The shuriken are there, and as I say, when we go to Eager, you you will see this in action. And as long as you know that it's it is you're looking at something that actually is genuine but is expressed in this wonderfully exaggerated way, I think you get a feel of what the whole cult of the ninja really is. It may be a fantasy, but it's a very old one, and it's a very good one. I'm looking forward to that. Um, I think we're... Oh, I know the last one we were... I know you've written a lot about Teutonic Knights. 
are there any uh, uh, spiritual commonalities between uh, knights and samurai? Oh, that, that, that's a good one, actually. I mean, the, you see, the, the early writers on Bushido, it, it, like in the Tobi's book, they keep referring to the word chivalry. The word chivalry. Um, for them, Bushido was the Japanese chivalric cult. Um, and there are certain parallels, certainly. The, the idea of the, the, the noble warrior, um, the dedication to the cause, um, fighting for right. But there are some huge differences as well. I mean, a lot of medieval chivalry, <coughs> excuse me, a lot of medieval chivalry has to do with very deeply Christian religious ideals, which can't possibly appear in Japan. And, um, and also, one thing that chivalry has got that, that the samurai cult doesn't have is, is the cult of the lady. Uh, the fact that the, um, what all the, the, the medieval ro European romances called courtly love, whereby the knight uh, does everything for his lady that he probably isn't married to. She's probably married to somebody else, but she's the one that, 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 that who, whose scarf appears on the end of his lance. And um, there's nothing like that in, in Japan at all. In the same way, of course, like the, uh, a lot of the, the chivalric epics are to do with the quest for the Holy Grail. Again, there's no parallel in that. And I think it, it, essentially that... Um, in terms of a knightly code, you could call Bushido Japan chivalry, but you then have to qualify it quite a lot. But having said that, having said that, if we just miss out those two words, chivalry and Bushido, and look at fighting knights, fighting samurai, it's the same the whole world over. Here you've got the individual warrior. What motivates them? The individual search for glory, for personal honor, that's there in both. The notion that you're serving your Lord and you've got to be loyal, that's there in both. The opportunism that gets them to forget what they've just said about loyalty to, to the Lord, that's there in both. The, the, the battles, the glory, the blood and the guts and all that, it's there. It's because they are fighting men. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about Japanese samurai, whether you're talking about uh, Turkish Janissaries, if you're talking about Knights of the Wars of the Roses, in this whole medieval period that's constrained by the use of armour, of a horse, of, of weapons, of firearms coming in and acting as a challenge, you see a commonality there of the, arist the aristocratic warrior who's better than these common peasants. Uh, and much better because these common peasants now have muskets and they have this nasty habit of shooting them at you. How dreadful. And it's so far beyond your dignity. But I think it's it's this elitism, this aristocracy, this snobbery that all these warrior societies have in common. And the samurai had it in spades. That's, I think, why they are so fascinating. Wow. <laughs> Wow! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you got me going. Wow. Yeah, there we are. Well, it's it's great fun. I know. I just love talking about samurais. You've probably gathered. I mean, it, it, put it like this: when when we do this tour in in in, in October, Terrace, you're gonna have to tell you have to tell me to shut up. Oh, just, yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> no, absolutely not. You know what? I was just thinking, oh my God, I am so excited about going on this tour now. Like, holy man, I can't wait to be there. And, but I'm and, going to insist on Zen meditation that gives us a break. Say, right, shut up everybody and meditate. Right, so, <laughs> right okay, yeah. good. You'll be, able, you'll, be able to, you'll, you'll be able to say shut up to yourself then. Uh, that's right, yes. I <laughs> wow, am I super pumped. Um, do we have any other questions, Danieli? I we... that's a wrap, pretty much. Okay, good. Uh, I, I, I do. Oh, I know. Do you have any? Uh, we talked about what what you had in the hopper. Anything else you want to talk about? Well, books? I'm so pleased you asked that. I was going to interrupt <laughs> it. Um, if you uh, the just out the December 2018. Um, issue of a, a magazine called Medieval Warfare, a popular magazine, um, has an article by me about the Japanese pirates fighting in the Philippines, which, which might be of interest. But the next thing that's coming up, available in April, only three months to go, it's, oh God, not another book about ninja. And that's not actually the title, but I think people will say <laughs> about ninja. Um, it's part of a series by Thames and Hudson, published jointly in London and New York, which are spoof training manuals for warriors. Um, in the series so far, there's a training manual for Vikings, one for gladiators, uh, and two that I've done, one for samurai and one for pirates. And the idea is these are aimed at the intelligent teenager or older children who were have moved out of comic books now and want to read something serious. My brief is to be accurate. My, my brief is also to be funny. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I have written a training manual for Ninja. It's everything you have ever wanted to know. And to keep in with the series format, I have pretended to be an 18th century Ninja Grandmaster who has written this book for the ninja of the future. And that what I've done, all the stuff in it is genuine stuff from the ninjutsu manuals that were written at the time. And we filled it with illustrations, some woodblock prints and everything in my collection. And I, I think it's fun. It's, it's done for fun. It will be enjoyed. And it's called Ninja, the Unofficial Manual. And Thames and Hudson, April 2019. That, I think, will be great fun for everybody. Oh, my God. I'm so excited about that. I had no idea. I bought the the Legionary one when I was visiting ha ah, Hadrian's, yes, yes, ha that's Hadrian's right. Wall. One of the first one. Yes, that's right. Yeah. When I was up at Hadrian's Wall. Wow, that's awesome. That's great. Yeah, well, I say I've never enjoyed writing a book so much. It, it's 40,000 words, and I wrote the whole thing in two weeks flat. It just It just flowed so well. And um, the, the, the guy who's written it is very pompous and arrogant, and he knows it all. You know? <laughs> he, and he's from Eager, so he's totally contemptuous of the warriors from Koga. And <laughs> it's all about it's how you climb a wall. It's how you set fire to things. It's even got, oh, yeah, actually, yes, it's even got information about explosives. So... Um, I'm gonna to have to be a bit careful about that, but uh, it, it's it's got it's got the bit about don't try this at home, um, and it's it's not exactly a bomb manual. Uh, I, I do have to be careful because um, 
Uh, I, you know, uh, these days. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> but anyway, there you go. So it's, it's just, just for Ninja. But the thing is that if any Ninja take offense, um, I, uh, I, 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 I am on the lookout for them. But then, of course, Ninja don't give warning, do they? So I'm just waiting for the death threats to come. So I hope I don't get any before October. That would really spoil the trip. <laughs> that would be, yes. If I've been murdered by a jealous well, well, ninja. Well, the, the, death threats, <laughs> the, 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 the death threats are okay, as long as it just doesn't, they don't actually. Uh, yeah, do I, I can handle threats. It just, <laughs> that, boosts, that boosts my sales considerably. So <laughs> if people I just send me threats, then um, my address is in the phone book. <laughs> <laughs> and and so everybody knows it's actually <laughs> on, <laughs> on pre-order. So if you want to get it's, it's, it's on pre-order, yeah, yeah, I can see it on Amazon right now. And so if you want to get your death threats in quickly, get, um, them, get them in quickly, get them in quickly, <laughs> because there'll be there'll be a waiting list. They'll all be queuing outside my front door with with iron bars. So That's join right. the queue, join the line now, folks. While right. while the chance is still there. No, no, I thought you were going to get killed by a shuriken. Ah, oh, oh dear! That, what see, how, yeah. see what I did, see what I did there. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, <laughs> thank thank you so much for spending time with us. It was, it's it's was a complete pleasure. And it was um, good. I assure you, it really has been. And and like I said, I'm incredibly uh, excited about our tour. Uh, Danielle, uh, do you have anything uh, that we have to talk about yet? I don't think so. I we're think good. We cover all the bases. Okay, awesome. Uh, next time, I think we're going to talk about Osprey's publishing the Trushkins. Uh, by Alter, I'll go with the Italian. Don't yeah, worry. Thank you. Uh, Raffaele D'Amato and Andrea Salimbeti. Thank you. You saved me. All right. Thank you very much. Signing off from. Uh, uh, I was going to say signing off from History on Fire, actually, but. That would be wrong. Um, that's Danielli's gig, uh, which you guys should check out also. Please uh, give him some love and, and go listen to History on Fire, which is an incredible history uh, podcast. Signing off from The Scholarly Warrior. Thank you again, Stephen and Danielli. We'll see you again. Thank, Thank you, you so much. See you, Dada.
Oh 